0: to another episode of Building Prosperity with Commercial Real Estate. I am your host Gary Tsungu and today on the show we have Lloyd Burnbaum. Lloyd, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, Lloyd. It's definitely a pleasure and it's been a long time coming. Now, Lloyd, you have over 30 years of experiencing practicing law and looking at legal issues through the eyes of a business client. Lolita Burnbaum is a business law boutique offering general counsel, big firm services and sophistication with over 20 business lawyers now in addition to your law degree you have you have an MBA in finance from NYU and your practice focuses on representing clients as outside general counsel in all aspects of their businesses Now, clients typically seek advice with uh, you know street, strategic legal and business planning for new and expanding businesses in both private and public now you also have counseled over 300 clients that's impressive in raising capital and negotiating joint ventures, negotiating major contracts, and pretty much every aspect of real estate. In particular, development, acquisitions, leasing, and financing, with a total of over two billion dollars worth of transactions throughout your career. Now, I know, I know that that intro will probably won't do you, probably won't do you any justice because we would need an entire series just to go over your expertise, which is another reason why I'm very thankful to have you here. Uh, but like I said, your resume is nothing short of impressive. So before we dive in, um, looking back at your journey, it, this probably wasn't something that you had your eye set on. And what I mean by this is real estate or just the law in general. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in the industry?
1: Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, I had, like you mentioned, I have an MBA in finance, and when I uh, when I graduated from from NYU, I went to work for Citibank in New York uh, in commercial banking. And before I graduated from business school, I had decided that at some point I was going back to, to get a law degree. But I thought that when I started practicing law that I would be a business lawyer, but I didn't realize at the time that I had a passion for real estate. That came about um, a little further down, down the road. Uh, I guess I was a first year lawyer and I had an opportunity to work in different departments of a big law firm. Mm -hmm. And I spent four months in the real estate department at a time when things were very busy in the economy. Uh, I I started in, in late 1987 and got involved with some major projects over my first five years. I was involved with the development of an office tower complex in center city philadelphia known as liberty place and that project had two office towers an urban mall and a hotel and a and a parking garage all part of it and that was my first introduction to real estate at uh, in a law firm setting i enjoyed the class that i the classes that i took in law school and in business school but i really didn't have a passion for it until i actually saw a project And I saw cranes coming out of the ground that got me that got me going Mm -hmm. Um, along that, that first five year path also worked on the development of what's now known as the Wells Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia, where the Philadelphia 76ers and the Philadelphia Flyers play their games and where we go to see concerts and other and other great, great events. Um, it was in a, in a very exciting time. I was part of the demolition of an old stadium that was there, RFK Stadium, and for the development of this, uh, of this new uh, entertainment complex. That all happened within a five-year period. At the same time, I was working on much smaller matters. Um, some matters were, were you know, very discreet, boundary dispute or uh, the purchase and sale of, a, of an office building or a hotel, or the mm-hmm. refinancing of a portfolio of mobile home parks. You know, these were all types of transactions that I, that I worked on and uh, got my, uh, my feet wet and get started in real estate. And it really became a passion for me. Uh, so much so, I realized that one of the reasons that I really enjoy real estate is I like to help people reach their goals. Since I was a kid, since I was a Cub Scout, I've always been out there looking to help people achieve their goals. It makes me feel good. I feel successful when I am helping other people achieve success. And that's, uh, you know, that's, that's an exciting thing for me. And sometimes that goal is to develop a shopping center or that, right. that, yeah. goal, that goal is to exit the market. I recently represented <laughs> someone who after 35 years of being in business, represented him on the sale of his business to a private equity fund. And the business had two, uh, two pieces of real estate. And we did that as a, as a separate deal. And it was a big a big day for Mike's client after he sold the business and then sold the real estate. Um, he, was, he was out from under it. And that, that was what his goal was to enjoy the rest mm-hmm. of his life free of his business. Yeah, Um, Yeah, he uh, he achieved that that was a that was I felt I felt very happy for him
0: let that be a testament to your success I mean it sounds like one of the main reasons why you've you've achieved the success that you've you've achieved and gone to where you are today is because you're happy doing what you're doing and nine out of ten times if you're sort of dragging your feet to work you're not gonna get to the level that you're trying to aspire to get to but I want to backpedal a little bit and talk and and talk to you about when you first started at your first firm kind of Try to identify what it was that sort of excited you and what what motivated you to pursue to continue to pursue real estate. You said that you were four months. Uh, you worked for was it four months that you worked at a real estate firm? So
1: what it was a it was a big law firm. As a first year lawyer, I had mm-hmm. the opportunity to pick three departments to spend some time in to see where my interests may be mm-hmm. and those that then to see the interest of those in the, in the law firm as to where they could see me fitting in. And it was a perfect match. The, the month that I spent in real estate uh, I, I learned a lot and I clicked with the people and I, I felt like every day there was something new to learn. And every day I did mm-hmm. learn something and that was exciting. That yeah, was really sure. exciting. And plus to see the, see the projects, Coming up out of the ground, as I mentioned, uh, that got me going with uh, with uh, with, yeah. with real estate.
0: Now, regarding so you you also said that you had you, you had a five year your role at the law firm was about a five year period. Is that the same law firm? Same law firm. I stayed
1: at the first okay. law firm for for five years. Worked on great projects. Learned a lot about um, a lot about development, a lot about leasing, yeah. a lot about finance. Went through a period, the period where there was some turmoil in the markets. And so Mm -hmm. I got to experience some workouts and things of that nature. But after five years, um, a client hired me to go in-house and become a general counsel. And I was general counsel at a real estate development company for about a year. And I left it because I missed the practice of law. Mm -hmm. I missed having diversity of products, of real estate products. And I missed having diversity of, of clients. I'd like to have a mix. And, and the development company, I was developing one type of product. It was a shopping center product. Um, it was interesting and it was exciting. But at the same time, I missed what I was doing uh, in the in the big firm world. So I I left.
0: Yeah.
1: I left uh, the development company. I probably should have stayed. I probably could have been a very rich man if I had I stayed. <laughs> uh, but. I pursued my passion, which was, which at that point had become being a lawyer, being a real estate lawyer, being a transactional business lawyer, being an advocate, being a counselor to my clients, um, and helping them, as I say, helping them succeed and reach their goals. So I went back to a a, a larger law firm this time Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that was international in in scope and uh, more corporate, and I'm in a I'm in a boutique. A law firm now. I mean, I was in right. a law firm with fifteen hundred lawyers. My law firm has twenty odd lawyers today, and um, I take the same interest in teaching the young lawyers all about
0: real estate. Yeah. Now it seems like it seems like you excel in difficult situations. By the sound of it, you you know you started off in a law firm that had fifteen hundred lawyers, and one of the, your first projects that you had to redevelop was a Wells Fargo Center. And that was now, I mean, after you had started, so you so you graduated, and how how long between the moment where you had graduated to the moment that you had to develop uh, or sorry, redevelop uh, the RFK Stadium? So it was about a year and a half
1: into my practice, uh, I was approached by a partner who said that he needed my assistance for a major project where we would be demolishing rfk stadium in philadelphia and in its place developing a new arena which today is known as the wells fargo center it's Mm -hmm. it's had many names because there have been many bank acquisitions right Uh, but as you know as part of the development in addition to the real real estate development was the whole naming rights Uh, it was at the at the outset of naming rights before Mm -hmm. arenas around the country were being and stadiums were being named after corporate America sponsors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it was at the beginning of that. So it was kind of, it was okay. interesting and, and, and exciting.
0: One thing that I wanted to ask you, that's a really big project, even for sort of anybody. It sounds like you're really, really good at what what you did for you to sort of take on a project like that, or you just, you were fearless. Whatever adjective you want to use to describe you at the time. You, I, you know what, fully... Gary? I, I like, I'm going to interrupt for a second. Yeah, I yeah. think that for the for the most part, I'm
1: super curious. And okay. by being curious and having a passion, I get into it. I really, right. I, I get into it. Now, I, I was a junior person on the team. I was working with a, a senior partner who taught me a lot about development, okay. and taught me a lot about public relations. We were in the newspaper. Our, our, our transaction was in the newspaper on a regular basis. We had our spin doctors, so to speak, um, yeah. who would place things in the, in the news that, that was advantageous to the negotiations that we were undertaking. It was an incredible education, and not yeah, just on the technical real estate aspect on it of it, mm-hmm. but in business, big business in general. I was, uh, yeah. I'll be forever grateful to the team that I was part of for educating me in this process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a really steep learning curve. If I've ever heard of one or ever experienced one. Now, speaking of learning curve and kind of try to switch gears into switch gears to real estate a little bit. What were some things that you learned there that you still some lessons that you learned there that you still apply to this day when it comes to redevelopment? I
1: learned uh, I learned to rely on myself, to ask questions, and to not be afraid to let my creative energies flow and adapt. I mean, here we were uh, developing a new arena in a city where change wasn't wasn't always welcome. People like things the way they the way they were. There was a there was a gentleman's agreement in Philadelphia that no building would be taller than William Penn's hat. William Penn, as we know, was the first governor. He founded Pennsylvania um, and his statue stands on top of City Hall. So there was this gentleman's agreement that no building would be higher than William Penn's hat. Uh, And that during my first five years in practice, when Liberty Place was developed, we saw that gentleman's agreement broken. It no longer applied and the, the skyline of Philadelphia changed.
0: What was one of the reasons why they broke that gentleman's agreement?
1: A vision of what the city could be. A vision of the city moving forward instead of standing still. A vision of office towers and hotels, uh, an economy that was uh, able to generate so much more in terms of gross product than what they had before. The the synergies from building a a business district uh, with office towers uh, really changed changed the landscape in real estate in Philadelphia.
0: How was the entitlement process for that? I know that a lot of developers have a hard time. It's, there, there, there's a political component when it comes to development. You gotta have relation, I mean, having relationships in the city is definitely a bonus. Um, knowing some people in the city is definitely a bonus. And for those that, for those inexperienced developers or developer, developers that don't have, don't necessarily have the track record, it's a lot more difficult for them to get those approvals and those building permits and entitle, Entitled the land to what to what their you know to what their vision is and what they're trying to build. What was some of the pushback that the city was giving, or was there no pushback because there was that vision? And good good question, Gary. Good question. Um, I have
1: found that with pop projects like like Liberty Place, which was two office towers, a hotel, and in a, a, an urban mall and a parking garage. Um, and projects like the Wells Fargo Center, those projects had a lot of public support. So in terms of entitlement, yes, there were many approvals that had to be obtained. As a matter of fact, for the Wells Fargo Center, the whole zoning code needed to be rewritten with respect to a stadium district. It didn't exist before. So new rules were written. And um, the public sector was excited to see the development go on, and were worked with the developers really very much, so helping shape what the, what was needed to um, to accomplish the, uh, the the development. Unlike in so many other developments that I've worked on over the years since then, uh, where community opposition is sometimes difficult to overcome, I remember. Um, I, I remember one project was the development of a redevelopment of a shopping center in, uh, in, in a suburb. And the, we needed the community support to, to do the redevelopment. And there were some neighbors who had bad experiences with the, the property that needed to be mm-hmm. redeveloped. Uh, mm-hmm. Noise, um, people hanging out loitering at night lights coming into their windows things of things of that nature so there were to to obtain the entitlements we had to come to terms with the community group and uh that you know that involved concessions and concessions typically involve money uh for Mm -hmm. the, the for the developer but in exchange we ultimately had in that case we ultimately had the support of the community, you can get a, you can get projects through without the support of the community, but it's mm-hmm. it can be long, and it can be a long process, and it can be expensive process, and it can be a litigious process. Mm-hmm. You know, in, engaging the community to educate them on the benefits. You know, people have not in my backyard the phrase "nimby." People don't want things in their backyard, but when they are educated about the benefits they can make a better choice. And so working with communities in terms of getting entitlements um, can be very is is very, very
0: it's a fundamental part of the approval process that can't be overlooked. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's I think that's one of one of the many pushbacks that developers have experienced time and time again where they have to work with the community. I'm currently negotiating a project out. In Washington, getting getting the neighborhood on board with the project and getting them getting them to be okay and getting their approval, it was it was one of one of the biggest um, things that we had to overcome. One of the biggest obstacles we had to overcome. Um, however, it mitigates a lot of the risk when it comes to getting that neighborhood neighborhood approval. Um, this is a really good segue because I want to talk to you about some of the difficulties that developers experience from a legal standpoint. Um, I'm sure you've worked with a lot of experience (laughs) over three, you've represented over 300 clients. And what I wanted to ask is, aside from the entitlement process uh, that developers have to work with and having to work with the city, what are some some legal issues or legal problems that you're seeing developers, the issues that inexperienced developers are facing? And then tell us a little bit about even, even the problems that experienced developers my face
1: hmm. some of the problems are the same some okay. of the problems are the same um, and uh, real estate developers are traditionally uh, visionaries and uh, they can see things um, seven eight ten steps down the road and and actually see the finished project they can they can picture that 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 obviously that that changes over time as you go through the process with architectural and engineering and how project lays out on a particular a particular site but things that are are common are not having a good enough plan or not having a plan Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. not having a plan the plan helps you in many ways you know not only you focusing on on the the steps but the timing of the steps Uh, if you want to develop in a in a way that um, will let you start collecting if you're going to own, let you start collecting the rent sooner rather than 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 later. In states like New Jersey, mm-hmm. it could take years to develop uh, a gas station. One of the one of the popular brands uh, in this part of the country and down in Florida is Wawa, and uh, to develop a Wawa, it's a super gas station. It's a convenience store. It's, a re, it's not a sit-down restaurant, but a takeout restaurant and gas station. And one of those projects in New Jersey can take you three years. And that's oh, wow. if you plan. That's if you plan it well. You know, your timing, your sequencing of getting approvals is really important. And there are many approvals that are dependent upon others. I need this approval before I can go for that one. But then there, there are other approvals that can be Uh, set out on parallel tracks to obtain it's important that you have a good plan in place so you don't stumble over the timing because a bad plan will cost you more money to develop or can cause a a project to fail building a when you
0: say so okay the team is crucial and i really want to get into that uh, absolutely but when you when you say plan what do you what do you mean by plan exactly like how how would you get how would you get a an inexperienced or an experienced developer sort of I know that there is no matrix, there's no there's no blueprint because every single project is different and every single project has its own difficulties and every single even different asset classes have their own difficulties and nuances. But when you when you sort of discuss a plan, what are some things that they can do to plan better?
1: Well, the developer will have a vision of what. He, she wants to do with a particular site at a point early on, Mm -hmm. there should be, and this goes back to the team building, the developer should have meetings with the team so it can be understood what approvals will be needed along the way. And that team would, would consist of a surveyor land planner, engineer. Um, depends if there's wetlands, whether or not you need an environmental engineer, architect, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and a finance person, uh, and probably someone who has um, their pulse on the market. If it's going to be a project that's that's going to be leased up, uh, their pulse on the market of what's hot, what's current, and what what rents can be obtained for mm-hmm. for the project, so that early on you can build a pro forma that makes sense and by building that team early on you are uh, not only you able to build the timeline but you're able to build the budget and i think that's mm-hmm. where that's where some developers need a little bit of help especially younger developments younger developers in building a realistic budget uh, and things things always cost more than your first hold mm-hmm. they, they all yeah. it just seems that to be the case um yeah. Maybe people give you a low price because they want the work, Um, but things always tend to cost a little bit, a little bit more. Um, Which brings me to another, another point. Besides planning, timing and building a good team, I think that uh, part of the plan is your capital raise. I have one Hmm. client who I guess he thrives on this, but he doesn't have a good capital plan from the outset. He knows, he knows that he's going to need to borrow a certain amount of, of, of capital and that the rest of it is going to be raised through equity. But the, how he raised it mm-hmm. through equity, it can, um, in the course of a transaction, can take many twists and turns. So mm-hmm. for this particular developer, he's you know, not set with, uh, with a group of in- investors from the start or sufficient capital of his own to fund all the equity along the way in a project that might have four phases to it he might have four different partners that he yeah. that he partners up with while he is mid-deal while he's still putting the deal together so his plan is taking shape there's, an, there's a saying for this he's flying an airplane as he's building it he's building it <laughs> like he it. doesn't have a he doesn't have a solid plan he has experience too, uh, so he can, he can draw upon. But I, I have found that uh, that the method to his math, madness uh, eats into profits, eats into his profits. He could be more profitable if he was more organized. But I suppose you could say that about a lot of people, Gary, a lot of business yeah. people. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, if, they're, if they're more organized, that, uh, that there'd be more profits for them.
0: Oh, for sure. And it's not just the profits, the only thing that he should be worrying about he or she. Um, And not just for their own profits, because it's one thing to sort of worry about your own profits and let's say the you know, during the project you lose money, but if you're going out there and raising capital from private investors, whether they're retail or institutional, you have to, you know, now you're playing with other people's money, right? Uh, It's the way to scale up and it's the way to kind of take down bigger projects if you can't take down larger projects by yourself, but the, there's there's a large risk of there's a lot of risk when it comes to development, and so you you, you can't just think about or developers if you know if I were to give them advices not to just think about your own capital, but it's also the capital that you're raising. And aside from that, the worst case scenario for a developer that might not have the right plan, might not have the right team, and might not have the the capital that they need for the project is that it might fail completely. And they might just they might just crash and burn, um, which is the worst case scenario. And, and and it's happened. It's happened in Toronto where we've seen developers go bankrupt with condominiums, new high-rise condominiums. You know, the developers have gone bankrupt. And for one of one of the factors that you had mentioned, uh, aside now aside from all, all all of the reasons that you had mentioned previously, which one are you which one are you assisting or sort of helping developers more so in? Is there one more than the other, or is it a mix of all of them?
1: it's really a mix of of all of them. I I would say that um, it's not just developers, but it's investors as well. Um, A client who buys um, suburban office buildings, and um, it's okay if it's only 10 or 20 percent occupied. If it's priced right, um, he's pretty good at uh, gauging the cost to um, bring a property up to a, a current attractive standard at mm-hmm. a at a reasonable, reasonable rate. Then so that's a question of helping the client structure leases. Um, and a mm-hmm. lot of that, a lot of that, that information comes from brokers, but uh, you know, I, I've seen if you if your project is going to depend upon rents, which mm-hmm. most real estate projects do, unless they're going to, unless you're buying, unless you're developing to sell, uh, mm-hmm. If you're developing to hold, you know it relies upon the rents, and I've seen some young developers quickly jump on giving incentive leases out there, sweetheart mm-hmm. leases mm-hmm. so that they can get their project started. And that may be what the market is. I mean your brokers will tell you if that's where the where the market the market is at. but I, I've seen some, Younger brokers, excuse me, younger developers look to that fairly quickly as a way to lease up a project. Mm-hmm. Um, and r- right now, if you if you were if you were investing or developing suburban office buildings, you would uh, people would be asking you why why are you investing now? W- what is the what is the upside here? People are companies are looking at their leases right now and deciding whether to whether to stay, whether to decrease their footprint? Um, Will will their workers be uh, working from home? Will they be working remotely elsewhere? Will they be coming into the office two or three days a week? Do they need their own office space? Can Mm -hmm. all the office Mm -hmm. space be shared? There are a lot of those things that are going on right now. They're they're not legal, but they Mm -hmm. sort of are legal because it comes down to the contract, what the lease is gonna say. But a Mm -hmm. lot of it is business counseling walking and talking through the issues with, with a client, you know, there are, there are some properties that are going, that need to be repurposed. We Mm -hmm. and we will see a lot of properties being repurposed over the next decade. shopping centers, malls, malls, particularly, Mm -hmm. we'll see a lot of malls repurposed. Uh, I hear plans all the time. There's Mm -hmm. a, a mall not too far from where I'm sitting right now. And, they're converting some of their property into hotel space hotel space so they're going to wow. knock down where a big box department store was and they're going to put up uh, they're going to put up hotels um you know if the if the uh, the demographics are right and the location's right maybe maybe a hotel is right this this location lends itself to it um i've heard others discuss of converting shopping centers into senior housing um, you know the ability to for people to for 24 for 24 hours a day uh, 7 days a week 12 months a year be able to take a walk outside their apartment in a, in an air conditioned controlled in, environment um wow. heard some people look at look at malls and i know one in particular that's being looked at for conversion to a school schools are another interesting because of covid that's another interesting real estate play mm-hmm. will the will will the school of yesterday be able to survive the education demands of tomorrow uh, mm-hmm. will there be as many as many students living on campus will there be as many students living in town how many students will stay at home and pay for and pay for a prestigious degree but study remotely these things we don't know yet we, right. we, don't, we, we don't know yet and so these affect the legal relationships between landlords, tenants, lenders, investors, and so on. Uh, but uh, those relationships which I document in, in, in transaction documents, operating agreements, joint venture agreements, a lot of that's going to be dictated by what happens um, to the psyche of the, in the American workplace. Because the psyche of the American workplace will also drive what housing looks like. I think, well, you can look at New York City as an example. Many major cities where right now um, the office towers are have a skeleton crew. Companies aren't, you know, people aren't at, at working in their, in their offices. They're working from, from home. Um, and if they're going to continue working from home, are they going to continue renting in the city because they like the urban life? Or are mm-hmm. they going to say, "Well, listen, I'm working from home. I need, I want a bigger office at home. Mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. want, um, you know what? I think I'd like to live out in the countryside and not have to commute." The, the right. COVID has done a lot to change the psyche and the thinking of, of the workplace, and again, that, I think that'll have a tremendous impact on on housing right. and of course and of course retail. With COVID, I saw clients, developers. And particularly, the developers, um, people who were in, in the midst of developing projects, construction, have everything put on hold. Uh, things mm-hmm. were put on hold. Mm-hmm. You couldn't get, you couldn't get permits. You couldn't get inspections. Mm-hmm. Things have improved greatly. But uh, if you were cash strapped when when COVID started to take effect, or mm-hmm. when I should say, mm-hmm. the market started to absorb the impact of, of COVID, you know there were. There were developers, there are developers who
0: were unable to meet their debt obligations at the bank. Right. Um, it was sort of like a blessing in disguise as far as COVID goes for developers or for projects to be put on hold. Um, hopefully for developers that didn't have ongoing projects at the time and they didn't have to service any debt uh any con- a construction loan for their project. But the reason I say it was a blessing in disguise is because you don't really know how, how the virus or how COVID would have impacted uh, impacted the design of the final product, right? Like you said, you have to accommodate for people working at home. Yeah, yes, you do.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm an attorney, so I follow what goes on in the law firm market and real estate. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, some major law firms have been changing their, their footprint. Their leases came up or they decided to give back some space to the landlord and uh, refit their space for, uh, for a hotel-type environment. Where you reserve you reserve an office for the days that you're going to be there, you reserve conference rooms, you book services like you would for a, on a on right. a hotel or a la carte basis. I see that happening. Um, I see that happening. So there will be others. There's always, I find Gary, that whenever there is disruption in the market, it's a good thing for entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. see where arbitrage it, where there can be a profit made by arbitraging the, the 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 markets, they see a disconnect, they see a gap, they see a need that needs to be filled. They they see new things. Right. Um, you know, we don't know. Listen, we don't know what the what the uh, what the real estate construction business will look like in years to come. We don't know what buildings will look like. Everything right now is focused on green, green sustainability. Having a uh, a carbon neutral impact, our our commercial real estate um, was not designed to produce positive um, uh, impact uh, in the in the carbon emission category. So there are many buildings that need to be looked at from an energy perspective and a you know and a and a waste perspective. Mm-hmm. We're going to see a lot of change over the next ten years. We have seen a lot of change. I mean, in in some markets now we're we're seeing. Green buildings, and we're seeing a lot more. What would have been office space is now being more lab space. It's kind of exciting when there's all this lab space going on. The yeah. lab mean that there's there's development, there's research and development. There are new things, there's innovation coming along.
0: Yeah how how are you how are you sort of helping or what what would you sort of uh, advise developers do to mitigate any unforeseen changes or shifts in the market like that? I, I don't think anybody could have predicted that COVID or a virus like that. We've had viruses around the world, but I don't think anybody would have predicted that it would have had that kind of impact. Everybody was sort of waiting for another recession to happen sort of like 2008, 2009, and that people were kind of kind of waiting for it. And they knew that the recession might be coming, but they didn't know that it, that it would have been a virus. But for the sake of mitigating risk, what would you sort of advise for developers to do?
1: Who could predict an epidemic, a pandemic, um... I mean, we've, we haven't seen anything like this in my lifetime, in your lifetime, right. uh, and hopefully we'll never see anything like this uh, again. I don't know how you can prepare mm-hmm. adequately other than to have um, reserves. It right. uh, goes okay. back to building your budget and your plan. I mean, maybe you need to overcapitalize. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the right, the right or I don't know that there is a right or wrong answer. Um And maybe it would be a mistake to overcapitalize, but having a cushion would help get through periods like this. But if you are developing uh, an office building and you are making certain assumptions, I think those assumptions may have changed or maybe they're they're in a state of flux right now. Mm -hmm. So often people say, oh, find the guy with the gray hair because he has the experience and with that experience comes the wisdom. I'm smart mm-hmm. enough to know that the answer often lies in young people. And so what I would do in building my team, I'd make sure that I have young people who are um, who are focused on what's going on in the workplace from the, from the millennial perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because even if we didn't have COVID, Many millennials who I work with, they're already accustomed to working remotely. I have found that corporate clients of mine, uh, I'm right now I'm in negotiating a, a lease transaction in Salt Lake City. And one of the, the client doesn't know what the office of the future is gonna look like, but has a has a presence in Salt Lake City, wants to continue having an office, wants to continue having a home for its employees but doesn't know what the future is going to look like and so Mm we've we've negotiated two lease termination rights in the lease at at different Mm -hmm. intervals which allow us to go in for a long-term lease with the ability to terminate early and give back space. Uh, so from a corporate American perspective, not the developer side, but the the tenant, the user side, um, I'm seeing you know that vision or that I should section, call a vision, I, the demand for flexibility because of the uncertainty of where things will shake out. Right. I, I've seen real real estate comes and goes in cycles. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think it will continue to do that. Just the cycles will just look a little yeah. a little different retail and yeah. office is hurting a little bit right now but uh or maybe a lot right
0: now but housing's gangbusters yeah. um yeah it's ha- crazy housing
1: is, housing is gangbusters
0: yeah it's crazy what's happening it's 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 almost unexplainable and i wanted to touch on touch on a point that you made regarding hiring somebody with with gray hair and in, in other words with experience i can't tell you how many people are just flabbergasted when they ask me a question and i say i, I don't know and I say, well, what do you mean? What do you know? Well, that, that, that's a question for my legal counsel. Or that's a question for for my partner. And all all of majority of my team is comprised of people with decades of experience, more than I have. That that's for sure. And it's 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 crucial to sort of have that dynamic. I agree. Where you know you also look to younger people to kind of have their own experience and bring in their own experience, whether it be innovation that they're bringing to the market that is going to kind of shift the market. But at the same time, you can you can can't get there. You can not accomplish that vision, in my opinion, or my experience, I should say, without that experienced team to help you circumvent the waters, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's when you're experienced. I think even when you're experienced and you've, you've done this many times and you've worked on a plan and a budget, building a team, I still think you rely on your team. Right. Um, You rely on your team. I mean, if, if, if times get tough, then your team gets small and you're, you're covered very thinly. You speak to your lawyer only on the essentials. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, you're spending, you're probably spending more time with your, with your engineers and your architects.
0: So if you had a piece of advice for an upcoming developer, um, I would imagine that the advice would sort of either be a little bit different, but it might be the same. If you had one piece of advice for an upcoming developer, an experienced developer or sponsor, what would that advice be?
1: I don't think it's much different than what I, I said earlier. I think that uh, they've got, got to learn to rely on themselves to be creative and also pull together a team where everyone else on the team is, has a skill set or is brighter than the developer, so mm-hmm. that the developer mm-hmm. is is well well guided through the through the process. And in order mm-hmm. to do that, you have to be well capitalized. You have to know the right people, right. and you have to be well capitalized. So raising money um, and knowing who you're going to raise money from is uh, very important at, at the outset. At at the outset, I mean, you you need. I was speaking with someone uh, yesterday who was thinking about a new project, and he's an experienced developer. He's been around the bush many times. He's developed lots of different different projects, and the 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 first thing that came to mind after he decided what he wanted to do and what he thought it would cost from a big from from a from a macro perspective without getting into the details to see where things actually would cost on an on a value engineered basis right away his mind went to where am I going to raise capital how much capital do I have to raise how much debt what is the interest of the lending community and um, how much capital do I need to raise and do I want to look for institutional money or do I want do I want to do this through uh, a private syndication, selling mm-hmm. many units, mm-hmm. having many, many investors? That was the first thing that came to his mind. Mm-hmm. We weren't, he didn't think about entitlements. He didn't think about building a team. He, he thought about cost, overall cost, mm-hmm. and um, how much capital we'd need to raise. Right. It goes to a point that I made earlier. If you undercapitalize and things change or aren't as expected and you need to go find additional capital or go back to your investors, not a good position to be in. Right. Not a good person right. to be no. in. No, definitely
0: so, not. So, I mean,
1: it goes back to, goes back to being prepared. And, and in this case, um, I would say, trying to avoid raising capital midstream, try to assess what your cost are gonna be, be conservative, and not short short yourself on what's needed to develop a project.
0: Absolutely. If anybody asked me the same question, uh, I'd probably tell them to, to call Lloyd. I just got to <laughs> tell him, thank um, hey, you. Give, give Lloyd a call.
1: You know, over 300 clients over the years, maybe more. Maybe mm-hmm. more. Again, I'm, I'm I, I, yes, I, I enjoy the f- financial rewards I get from practicing law. Um, And from from investing with with clients, but I, I like to help people achieve their goals. And Mm -hmm. so uh, it's when I see someone that goes into a project and they're not well capitalized. I know it's going to be heartbreaking at some point along the way, they're going to be some sleepless nights. Will we have enough money to do this? Will I need to go in in hand and bring in bring in another another party? How does that affect my legal relationship with all the existing investors? Mm-hmm. How much more mm-hmm. do I have to spend on my lawyers to restructure this deal? Can my right. deal be restructured? Do I have to then, if I don't have enough money, do I have to cut corners? Do I have to f- eliminate certain things from the project? Again, right. not being, not thinking out in advance, um, uh, far enough to predict the amount of capital you'll need is, a uh, is a mistake that young people and experienced people can fall into
0: yeah absolutely absolutely couldn't agree with you more it happens more often more often than not unfortunately you know and sometimes some people
1: don't see young young developers don't see the the relationship of it all so that the the cost to develop then has to be um substantiated and underwritten for a loan and, and it has to be sized properly with respect to leases for generating revenue. So I mean, the leases feed on the financing and the financing feeds on the cost of construction and the financing feeds on the interest in investment by, uh, by, by third parties, again, whether it's institutional or, or, or private investors. I know I said a lot here. Uh, But there's, you know, there's, there's a lot to, uh, there's a lot to real estate. I'm looking at a a project right now. I'm looking at a project right now for a company that's relocating from New York to Southern New Jersey. And uh, one of the things that excites the most is the, the property is located in a, in a zone where they can build, put additional buildings on the site, Mm -hmm. but it's price. The purchase price is perfect for them to relocate their existing business into a building that exists on the property today and knowing that they'll have an opportunity to expand mm-hmm. and it won't cost them any more for the land. It'll be construction. Um, it's, it's owned in such a way. And it's such a part of town that this particular city is, is pro development. At least that's what the, the politics are today, pro development. Right. And so they're looking at that, building that, that expansion building, which would be bigger than, the, than the, the existing building as a tremendous development opportunity. And I'm looking at that right now and looking at the easements, the drainage mm-hmm. easements, the railroad spur that runs along the back of the property and looking at how they could tie into that railroad spur. Can they build tracks on their property to get railroad cars on and off the property as a means of distributing their product? This is a manufacturing company. Um, they manufacture parts uh, for automobiles um, okay. plastic parts i, I got I got I got excited with that let it get away from me for a second but there i mean there are so many things that i do for clients with respect to with respect to real estate uh, that it's not necessarily development you know i look at title to property i have to understand the easements uh, and i have to understand whether somebody has the right to build a road underneath underneath my building or across my property or where on the property, right. where on the property are those easement rights. Right. Um, there are so many issues in developing real estate, environmental, environmental alone um, can, if you don't give yourself enough time can really, really derail a project, uh, especially yeah. if there, if there's wetlands on the project and the wetlands mm-hmm. need to be delineated and you need to get an approval. You need to get a permit. And you need to figure right. out what the wetland buffers are. lots of little details lots of little details that uh that get taken they need to get taken into consideration and yeah together yeah there
0: isn't yeah there isn't a single sort of project that is cookie cutter i mean like houses and townhomes and subdivisions they might be cookie cutter but each one of them has a different design and then when it comes to more complex asset classes such as industrial manufacturing or 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 malls or stadiums you know they all have their nuances or difficulties and it sounds like you're it sounds like you're a jack of all of all of those a jack of all trades and a master of all you know so i love uh, it, I love yeah, it. I, and it's just because you love it you know if you didn't love doing this i don't think that i really don't think you'd be good and you would have been you know you'd be good at what you do and you would have been
1: as successful anymore. i like the mix of asset classes you know and, and yeah. as far as legal relationships go Contractual relationships between investors and and owners and landlords, whether whether it's whether you're talking about industrial or or commercial, you're, you're mm-hmm. looking at market conditions at the time, but the the legal concepts are all the same. Um, Absolutely, right. you know, They are they are all the same, except for entitlements, obviously, because of the different dictates of what uh, what you can and can't put on a property. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Lloyd, like I said, uh, you definitely have a passion for this and you definitely love it. And I really appreciate you taking the time today for coming on the show and talking to us about it and sort of, sort of teaching us all the tricks of the trades that you've learned along the way. Before I let you go, tell everybody where they can find you, website, social sure. media. Sure,
1: I I, uh, I would love to help um, anyone who's really uh New p- young people who are who, are, who are setting out um, and have started to define their goals and love to help help people um, investors uh, you know accomplished investors I can be reached I can be found on LinkedIn Lloyd Burnbaum is my name B I R N B A U M Lloyd my my law firm is Loletta L A U L E T T A Burnbaum. Again, we're a group of twenty odd lawyers, and I'll, we're a business law boutique. That's all we do. And I'm on Facebook. Um, nice. And and I'm on your podcast now.
0: Yes, you are. We'll definitely include all of the links into our show notes, so it's easy for everybody to find it. We'll be pulsing it. Yeah. And yeah. my my main phone
1: number is eight five. I wouldn't. Be, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be putting out a phone number to be honest with
0: you. <laughs> if you appreciate, <laughs> if you appreciate getting a quality sleep uh, at night or getting getting some rest during the day, that's for sure. Um, I know I've I've given out my phone number and plastered it before online. And it's like no, you know, I don't. There's not enough time in the day. It's true. It's not it's enough true. time in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you again, get
1: you get a lot of what happens is. I'm a giving person. I like to think of myself as a giving person. And so people will call and go, I have a question. Can you answer a question for me? And I'll answer a question for them. And I've spent half an hour on it and I haven't built them. They're not a client and I haven't built them. And, yeah. But I enjoy giving. I enjoy helping people. So mm-hmm. I think the opportunities come back to me because yeah. I, uh, I'm, no. I'm giving it myself. So if people yeah. call, I usually take the call. I mean, if, if there's if they're someone looking to do something in real estate, I usually take the call. Yeah. I try to avoid yeah. the
0: calls from salesmen, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, sometimes you never know, but uh, we'll definitely have your email there for everybody to contact you. Everybody everybody, and their mother uses email nowadays. So yeah. again, Lloyd, thank you very much for your time. It was, uh, it was greatly appreciated and I look forward to doing this with you again. Thanks, Gary, be well. Thank you, all the best. Bye. Bye-bye. Kay.